All right. Well, we are on part four of our series now, Living from a Culture of Prayer. I want to uh, get into this. We've got a few minutes left today, and I want to lay out some things about our spiritual family and how living from a culture of prayer, how it specifically is played out in our midst, how, how we go about this as a corporate body. And so I know we've prayed and prayed and prayed, but I just got to do it again. All right, here we go. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, Lord. Help me to speak as an oracle. Release revelation, I ask. Open our eyes. Open our hearts. Lord, I want to hold your hand. So come, instruct us and envision our hearts right now. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. So um, this series, Living from a Culture of Prayer, we've hit it from a variety of angles. And uh, as I said, I want to address how we do this as a corporate people. How, how does Gate City walk in what we're saying, a culture of prayer? How do we do this together? Now, there's a couple phrases that we use that they're not necessarily biblical phrases, but they're phrases that all mean the same thing, and we use them interchangeably. And I just want to mention them so that you can kind of get your mind around what we're saying. So when we say culture of prayer, it, we also use the phrase presence-centered, and we also use the phrase prayer-centered. And I was thinking about it when we're communicating. Sometimes you'll hear we're, we're a prayer-centered environment. And then sometimes you'll hear we're a presence-centered environment. Sometimes you'll hear we have a culture of prayer. In our, in our vernacular, those all mean the same thing. And they point to this, that for us, church is not a facility, and it is not a service that we attend. Church is a people, as Ephesians 2 describes, who are being built together as a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. That's what church is. Paul literally called the people a holy temple in the Lord. And so we, as a people being built together by the Spirit of the Lord, we host night and day worship and prayer at our center. And so all day, every day, morning, noon, night, 2 a.m., 2 p.m., Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving, for the last 15 and a half years, we have continued to host the presence of God in a perpetual environment of worship and prayer, and that's been our spiritual center. That's who we are. Now, from that place of adoration and intimacy with God, all the other activity of what it means to be the church flows out. We have teaching and preaching the Word of God. We hold the Word of God above everything else. The Scripture is our infallible director to how we live our life and how we practice all things in life and godliness. So the, we, from this place of uh, intimacy and intercession, we, we exalt the Word, we share the gospel, as we've talked about, from our neighborhoods to the nations, from house churches all the way to unreached people groups in Kenya, where tribal leaders are currently getting saved. I mean, that is so stunning and shocking. And so we live in family. We live with an a, a, a open-hearted intimacy with one another. We express that in service environments, but primarily in small groups, what we call house churches. And we train and send missionaries to the uttermost parts of the earth, as well as we do outreach, even in our local areas. This is how we're built together. And that entire thing, that's church. That's who we are. We're a presence-centered people, a prayer-centered people. We live from a culture of prayer to see all those activities of evangelism, of discipleship, of fellowship take place. Now, that sounds 
whoa, that's different and big. We say it's a unique expression of church. Um, I would be remiss if, if I didn't mention this point because I know sometimes people kind of have, have not heard what we've said in detail about what we feel like God's called us to do. But we feel like who we are as a people here in Lawrenceville is only one-fifth of the expression that God wants to give us in this city. We believe the Lord's spoken to us about four other locations that will be 24-7 churches that will be centered around the presence of God in night and day worship and prayer. They will cover the city and that there will be hundreds of other churches that we're in relationship in a family network connected with. Now, for those of you that when you hear a vision, you're like, how, 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 how? Just let your mind not ask how yet. I think about David when he vowed that he wouldn't rest, he wouldn't give sleep to his eyes or slumber to his eyelids until there was a dwelling place for God on the earth. When he made that vow, he had no resources and he was a fugitive. He didn't have anybody with him and he had no bank account. And he made a vow, I won't stop until God has a dwelling place on the earth. And so we know this, for God to give a vision, he also gives something else, provision. He brings the supply, he brings the finance, he brings the people, he brings the ingenuity. It's not our own strategy, it's not our own plan. If it's the Lord, he will make the way straight. Amen. And so one of the things, as, as you're hearing me say these things, uh, one of the things you may ask is, or, or may think is like, oh, they, they have a really cool, charismatic idea that they're going to do a lot of worship and they're going to do outreach and, oh, that's neat. They want to do five of them. And, and you might think, oh, we're the ones that came up with the idea. But this is not some new idea. When we say prayer-centered, presence-centered, culture of prayer, that's not a new idea. It's actually deeply rooted in biblical practice and theology. And so what I want to do is I want to give a little bit of the biblical story, because here's what I found. When we have theological clarity, we can have apostolic courage. Courage to build what God has invited us to build. And so when we're talking about living from a culture of prayer, it is, it is so emblematic of how the Lord led his people from Genesis, from the time of the garden, all the way through the sojourn of the Israelites in the wilderness coming out of Egypt, all the way into the promised land, all the way up to Jesus' day. When you track and trace how God has led his people, he's always led them from a presence-centered environment. Always. It was always his desire to dwell in the midst of his people. And the most... I think powerful example of that is the tabernacle of David. Everybody say tabernacle of David. I want us to get real familiar with that language. Tabernacle of David. So here's the thing. The tabernacle of David is one of the most powerful expressions of God's presence at the center. And it's one of the least talked about things in the scripture. It is a profound event that took place over 33 and a half years. It was the centerpiece of David's kingdom. It's actually the environment that David wrote the majority of his psalms. Most people don't realize that, that David wrote the psalms from this place of night and day worship and prayer. It was so significant and important to David that when he first became king, the very first thing he did was he went and got the Ark of the Covenant and he brought it back to Jerusalem and he set it on the hill of Zion. He put it in a tent that he'd already set up and that day they started worship and prayer before the Ark of the Covenant with the glory of God dwelling in the midst of the people. That was the centerpiece of David's kingdom. So often we hear the stories about David but we do not realize that what was happening in Israel was coming from this place of perpetual encounter and glory that was the center of his kingdom. And so the scripture talks about how David would go and sit before 
the Lord. Now, I just want you to let your, let your holy, your divine imagination wonder with me for a minute. David would go sit before the Lord, and the way he did that is he would go into the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant. It's about a six-foot by three-foot box covered in gold with two angels on the top of it and a mercy seat in the middle. And these angels have their arms stretched over this this box of gold. And this place was the emblem of the glory of God on the earth. It was known as the throne of God on the earth. David had singers and musicians that would continue to minister to the Lord around this ark. He, he did this night and day. And he said he saw the divine heavenly pattern and he reproduced it on the earth. You see, in the throne room right now, at the center of the throne is the Father. At his right hand is Jesus. And there around the throne are 24 elders. And before the throne are four living creatures. And then in this mighty grandstand are an innumerable company of saints and angels. And what we find is this, that the living creatures are leading a worship refrain that never stops day or night it's powerful the sea of glass the seven lamps of fire i mean this place has got lightning and thundering and voices coming out of god it's it's a place of beauty and wonder and encounter and and if if what i'm describing to you sounds bizarre i want to tell you this is god's living room If you ever walked into somebody's house and you start looking around on the walls and you're like, whoa, what are they, that's interesting. What are they, what did they put up there? We, we have a couple interesting pictures on our wall in our dining room. We've got a llama. <laughs> and we've got a sloth. And my wife likes them. They're cute. And they, that's what's in our living room, I mean, our dining room, a llama and a sloth. And on another wall, we've got Martin Luther King, and the I Have a Dream speech all written out. And then we've got little scriptures and little things like that. If you walked into my house, you started looking around at stuff, and you went, ew, a llama. <laughs> ew, a sloth. Why would you put a sloth on the wall? And you started like, shading our, you know, decor, you would probably, that would probably feel a little personal because we put it up there because we like it, right? God's throne room, he likes seven lamps of fire. He likes four living creatures that have eyes all over them and wings everywhere. He likes an eagle head living creature that says holy. He likes that. He likes a lion head. He likes an ox head and a human head, flying, living creature covered in eyes. He loves that stuff. He likes a sea of glass with fire in it. He likes thunders and lightnings and voices. He likes grandstands of angels and saints. And he really, really likes night and day worship that takes place before his throne. Because that's his place of government. He governs from the place of worship and prayer. He set up the universe to be run by the governance of God in the centerpiece of worship and prayer. When David set up worship and prayer before the ark on the earth, he was setting up an on earth as it is in heaven reality. Not only is God gonna govern the universe from night and day worship and prayer, David is gonna govern the kingdom of Israel from night and day worship and prayer. So this thing, this tabernacle of David, it is stunning. It is so important because it gives us a picture of how God leads, what God likes, and how God uses his authority in governance in the earth. 
So, so when we look at the tabernacle of David, there's so many amazing things about it. It, it starts with a, 188 singers and musicians. And by the time David's kingdom really grows to fruition, he's got 4,000 singers and musicians and 4,000 gatekeepers that are just stewarding this place of encounter. And David would go and he would sit in before the Ark of the Covenant and he would meditate on God's word. And it was in that place, I want you to catch this, that David got some of the deepest theological revelation that we have in the entire scripture. As I said, he wrote the majority of the Psalms from that place. But I want you to catch this. David, in front of the Ark, staring into the glory of God, he got revelation of the incarnation of Jesus. He got revelation of the sufferings of Jesus, of the crucifixion of Jesus. He foretold the resurrection of Jesus. He foretold the events of the end of the age, the drama that would fill the nations. He saw the nations raging in opposition to God in Psalm 2, the nations raging in opposition of, of God and his anointed Messiah. He saw Jesus return. He saw Jesus ruling and reigning from Zion. He saw Jesus and all the nations bowing before him. He got all that in that place of encounter. It's powerful, beloved. And so we, we can't understate how important that, I call it an ark shrine. That ark shrine on Zion's hill was is critical to the, the leadership of Israel, and the Lord commanded David to build it, and then David commanded all the successive kings after him to, to practice that, night and day worship and prayer. And so when they created Solomon's temple, they combined the, the mosaic worship environment, and they combined the night and day worship and prayer environment, and that's what the temple reality was. It had the sacrificial system, and it had the night and day worship and prayer. Seven Old Testament kings practiced night and day worship and prayer, and all seven of them had revival. Come on now, somebody. And so when Jesus shows up, and he shows up to the Jerusalem temple, and he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. He's pointing to a singular issue. It wasn't that they didn't still have sacrifices going. They'd still had the sacrifices. He's pointing to a singular issue. Where is the worship and prayer? Everything was supposed to be centered on the presence of God. But instead, you've made this place a place of commerce and you've made it a place of entertainment, but where is the worship and prayer? This is significant because the Son of God, he never gets physical. We never see him get physical with anybody except for when he shows up at the Jerusalem temple and two different times, he's overthrowing tables and he's scattering money changers and he's driving out oxen with a whip. Why? Because the gathering place of the people of God was always supposed to be centered on perpetual adoration. This is a critical thought. And I love Tabernacle of David. I kind of geek out on it a little bit. Starts with 288 singers, musicians, ends with 4,000 by the end of David's reign. 4,000 singers and musicians would be 40 times larger than the New York Philharmonic Symphony. Oh yeah, David paid for all of it. Government-funded night and day worship and prayer, David footed the bill for the whole thing. This is how Israel was supposed to live their entire time. Now, when we think about the dynamic glory that was there, and we think about the commitment of the, the king and the nation to, to fund the singers and musicians, that whole picture is not to be seen as some splinter thing, some anomaly. It's supposed to be seen as a pattern for us to glean from, to learn from, and to understand, and I believe to emulate. And so... 
when we, when we look at Tabernacle of David, uh, this thing is something that really requires some intentional study. So I will go ahead and mention this, that in your notes, you can, my website is there, billyhumphrey.com, and I've done a 10-week course. We did it, not this session, but we did it last session in our, our ministry school classes, and we recorded the whole thing for those that couldn't be in the class I want to encourage you, if you want to study about the Tabernacle of David, you can go to my website, go into resources, get that e-course. It's completely free. I believe that gospel should be free. You know what else should be free? Discipleship should be free. And so you can go right there, and it is 10 hours of teaching and 80 pages of notes on Tabernacle of David, and you can go into the detail of it. So here's what's interesting. And I want to look at this passage in Amos chapter 9, verse 11. Because we're talking about living from a culture of prayer, or living from a presence center, or living from a prayer-centered reality. Now, Amos, he is wrapping up his prophetic Ministry, and he is seeing into the future, a future day. He's many years after David's time, but he's looking into the future and he's seeing a day where David's tabernacle would be reestablished. And he says, On that day, he's prophesying. This is the Lord speaking through Amos. He says, on that day, verse 11, I will raise up the tabernacle of David which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed. The mountain shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now, Amos' prophecy is the clearest declaration we have in Scripture that one day, that tabernacle that David set up on Zion, that tabernacle will be rebuilt. Jesus Christ is going to return. He's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. And the Scripture is absolutely clear. He's going to set up a throne in the tabernacle of David. Isaiah 16, verse 5, literally says that. So when David, I mean, when Jesus sets up his rule and reign on the earth after he returns, it's going to be in a place of night and day worship and prayer. Again, on earth as it is in heaven. Are you tracking me this morning? Amos prophesied that. Very, very clear. There will be a day it will be rebuilt. Now, commentators, theologians, they, they will, they love to banter and argue and they'll fight, well, is it, is it David's reign? Like he's going to have a, a king that's going to come? Or is it just the government authority? Or, or what is it? And I look at the phrase, and, it, and Amos was really precise. He goes, I will rebuild it. I will restore it as in the days of old. The central feature of the tabernacle of David was that it was night and day worship and prayer on earth as it is in heaven. And so what's clear is this, there will again be night and day worship and prayer on the earth, just as it is in heaven. It will take place on Zion's hill, and the Lord is going to see to it that that is reestablished. Can I get an amen? And so what's interesting is, in Amos' prophecy, he talks about this interesting thing that will happen. He said there's going to be a time... At, when this is all rebuilt, where a few things are going to be happening simultaneously, Israel will be replanted in their land, never to be uprooted again. Now, 
Anybody that follows the geopolitical climate understands that 1967 was a serious, serious year where Jerusalem came back under the authority of Israel and the Lord, he reestablished them in that nation in a way that we hadn't seen for almost 2,000 years. Now, just get your mind around this, guys. You have 1948, they get back in the land. 1967, they get Jerusalem. And here's the point. We see nations change names. We see infightings and civil wars. We've seen this for centuries in the earth. And one nation changes a name, and then a new nation forms. And that old nation, its name never comes back. But not Israel. Not Israel. And what the devil tried to do in destroying Israel multiple times, sending them and scattering them into the nation to destroy the promises of God, God said, you can go this far and no more. He is faithful to his promises. He is faithful to do what he said. And when he said he was going to regather them into the land, he is making good on that promise. And I'm telling you, what we're seeing before our eyes, what we've seen in Israel and, and the way they've been rooted again in the land and been given Jerusalem, this is a massive signpost to the hour that we live in. And what goes hand in hand with that is this promise that there will be a rebuilt tabernacle of David. And I love it because he says it will be at a time when they're planted in the land and watch this, and there will be a harvest. He says, such a harvest that the plowman will overtake the reaper. Now, some of you go, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know a plowman or a reaper. I don't know what you're talking about. It's agricultural society, agricultural picture. Now, the plowman, they come out and they, they plow in, in the spring. And they plant seeds. Then we get summer and the seeds grow, and then we get harvest in the fall. Now, the reaper, the, the reapers, they take in the harvest. What he's describing is a harvest that is so over the top that the reapers keep reaping all the way through the winter, all the way around to the spring, and the reapers are still trying to bring in the harvest, and the plowman is over there running into the reapers. You're talking about a supernatural harvest that is beyond anything that would be natural until the plowmen have to stay, I mean, the reapers have to stay in the field constantly pulling in the harvest. Now, here's the thing. In context, he's using that emblem of this massive harvest, and he's pointing back to the fact that the nations will come to salvation. It's talking about a massive end-time harvest where the reaping is happening so continuously, there's no more time for plowing, there's only time for reaping. Come on now. People are like, how, why, do you, why do you believe in revival? Because the Bible says it so clearly. We're just not around the emblems that are used sometimes. But when he's talking about a harvest of the nations, when he says he was going to possess the remnant of Edom, he's talking about you know, all these nations all over the Middle East, they're going to come in to the kingdom of God, and the harvest will be so great, there will be no more room to plow, because all we can do is harvest. All right. Acts 15. Let me show you this. Because Amos wasn't just throwing a prophecy up into the air and going, oh, I hope it works. No, the New Testament church seizes on this prophecy in a really, really specific way. Acts 15, it's known as the Jerusalem Council. It's the first time all the leaders of the New Testament church come together and they're having to work through a controversy. They're having to figure out what do we do with all these Gentiles that are now a part of this church that are believing in the Jewish Messiah, and they do weird stuff? They drink blood and eat meat sacrificed to idols, and that's just not a barbecue that Jews go to. You understand? And, and, and there they are, and they are having barbecue pig 
on the spit. You know, can you imagine some good kosher Jews showing up and the Gentiles are like, come on over, guys. We got bacon. We, we got pork loin. Come on in. And when you, that's <laughs> a little side here. When you see the controversy, this is for the Bible nerds, when you see the controversy that is happening in Galatians 1, and it says, until the people came, the, the brothers came from Jerusalem, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. And then when the brothers showed up, Peter separated himself. I'm guessing on the Gentile table, they might have had some pork chops. You following me? And then the Jews come down from Jerusalem, and Peter's like, oh, yeah, I'm over here. I don't eat pork chops. And the guys from Jerusalem go, Peter, is that a little barbecue sauce on you? What are you doing? Check his blood sugar. See if he's been eating bacon. You know, so they're working through this in Acts 15. We've got issues that we don't know how to handle, and they're talking it all through. And, and so what they end up with is they end up with Paul and Peter all sharing testimonies about how so many Gentiles are getting saved. And after they listen to this for a long time, James stands up and he's going to make a really emphatic statement. He's going to say, okay, Gentiles are supposed to be in the church. This is how it's supposed to go. But what, what James does is it's, it seems really odd unless you understand that this was in the mind of James that there was going to be a rebuilt tabernacle of David because James is going to quote Amos's prophecy now listen there are dozens and dozens of prophecies James could have quoted from the Old Testament saying that Gentiles are now going to be in the church but what James does is he quotes Amos's prophecy here it is in Acts 15 verse 15 he says uh, he says, these testimonies we've heard from Paul and Peter, they're good and true. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. James points to Amos and he says, you know that whole thing about the tabernacle of David being reestablished? What Paul's doing in the churches that he's planted, what they're doing in Antioch right now, that is what Amos prophesied about. Which you got to track with me. So when you hear Paul admonishing the New Testament church, pray without ceasing. He's not thinking you and me are going to be a 24-hour prayer without ceasing. You couldn't breathe. He's talking about the church. But here's the big question. Where'd Paul get that idea? Tabernacle of David. When he says sing to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, where did he get that idea? David. Hear me. Before the tabernacle of David, the worship environment of Moses and the, and the people of Israel was silent. They had one trumpet at the beginning of the day and one trumpet at the end of the day, and everything else was quiet. David gives the earth worship and prayer with musicians and singers. David gives that to the earth. Watch this. There was never that in Israel's history before David, and every environment after was called to have worship and prayer. And even today, when we do worship in our church services, that recalls what David gave. And so when James is pointing to Amos and he's saying, what these guys are doing is this restoration of the tabernacle that was prophesied. Beloved, this instructs us in something that is super shocking. And here it is. The New Testament church was supposed to be built after the pattern of the tabernacle, 
with night and day worship. It didn't have to be 24-7, but a presence-centered environment where the people of God were built around it. It was supposed to be built around this continual adoration, just like the tabernacle, just like the temple. God didn't just all of a sudden say, okay, church, guess what? You know, instead of it being perpetual worship and prayer, that's dumb now, let's just do Sunday mornings. He didn't just turn that off and decide Sunday morning is the only time that you can do church. Come on, man. Okay, let me just blow your Sunday morning religious spirit a little worse. 321. Anybody ever heard of Constantine? He Christianizes Rome. He, he says he gets born again. Scholars contest whether he was sincere. It's okay. He Christianized it, but in 321, he makes a law. Sunday is going to be a day of rest. Where do you think he got that idea? From the Jews, from Sabbath. Now, but, but instead of it being on Saturday, Constantine goes, it's now on Sunday. And the, and the, the high day of prayer that was Tuesday uh, among the Jews, Constantine goes, you know what, let's just do that on Wednesday. Now follow me. So instead of it being Saturday and Tuesday, Constantine moves it to Sunday and Wednesday. Guys, do you know why we meet on Sunday? Because Roman Emperor Constantine said Sunday is the day of rest. That's why we meet on Sundays now. Beloved, that was never the pattern for the people of God. They Read in Acts 2. They prayed how often? Daily. Why? Because they weren't patterned after Roman Catholicism. They were patterned after the tabernacle of David. Are, are you guys? It's, yeah, now you're going, dear God, what have we been doing? <laughs> it's okay. I see that emoji with the blown head over you. It's okay. Just receive. <laughs> but but here, here's the thing I want to say. When we say living from a culture of prayer, living, living from a, a presence-centered or a prayer-centered, being a presence-centered, a prayer-centered people, what we're pointing back to is Tabernacle of David. Why can you come in here at 2 p.m. and there's somebody serenading the Lord, worshiping the beauty of majesty? Where did we get that idea? We got it from David. Why can you come in here at 2 a.m. tonight and find somebody in here worshiping and praying. We got that idea from David. Where did David get that idea? From the throne room. Where are we right now? We're on earth as it is in heaven. Our spiritual family has an environment that continues night and day on earth just like it does in heaven. But this is what I want to draw your attention to. Amos prophesied it and James said it would happen. But there is coming a global restoration of the tabernacle of David. And I'm convinced of this. I'm about to say something that's profound. I'm convinced of this. There is a reformation in the church where we're moving from a synagogue thing to a tabernacle thing. Where we're moving from a Sunday-centered thing to a presence of God-centered thing. Where we're moving from a program thing to his glory dwelling in the midst of the people of God again. This, beloved, is what God has done to us in all these merges and all these gyrations where, I mean, I'm sitting there. I, I, did, I did local church, mega church for 13 years, my wife and I as youth pastors, and God plucks us up out of that, stuffs us in the house of prayer in Kansas City for a year, has us come back here and build a house of prayer, and I have no idea what I'm doing. Because all I know is leadership, culture, and charismatic church. I don't know anything about presence-centered tabernacle. <laughs> and it had to be because it's <laughs> what he called us to do. And then he gives us 24-7, and it stays going, even though we try to blow it up 25 times in all sorts of different ways in human error and all sorts of stuff. God continues to sustain us. And then four years ago, Dustin starts dreaming. I'm just telling you. Duck when Dustin dreams, because it's going to change your life. And God confirms it 20 different ways, and we merge together. And all of a sudden, I realize he takes the house of prayer, he puts it in the local church. Why? 
because he's restoring the tabernacle of David. We're going to see it in phase one across the nations and the expression of the people of God. And we're going to see it in fullness when Jesus Christ returns and he rules and reigns from Zion. I know that was a ton that I just gave you. It's all in the notes. Amen. But when you think about who we are, we're people built together around the presence. We gather together. That's why we have a presence center. That's why we have night and day worship and prayer because Jesus Christ is to be the principal figure in his church. It's not supposed to be personalities. I'm convinced one of the reasons why God is sending me on sabbatical is to get me out of the way so Jesus can be exalted. And I feel that. I don't want any personality in front of Jesus. And so this is who we are as a family. Anytime, day or night, you can come right here and we're adoring Jesus. That's not the only thing we do. It's just the center thing that we do. And from there, teaching, discipleship, evangelism, spiritual family, all flowing out of that together. This is who we are. And you know what? He doesn't want to just do it here in Lawrenceville. He wants to do it all over the city. He wants the whole city to be a citywide tabernacle. Come on. And that's why we're saying there's four more that we're going to build. God's going to do that across the city. And when he does that, the glory of the Lord is going to dwell in Atlanta there's going to be a 50-mile demon-free zone. I believe this. That Atlanta is going to fall to the kingdom of God. This is what we get to do. Amen? All right, listen. Stand with me right now. So when we're talking about living from a culture of prayer, that's what we're talking about. Some of you, what I just said... In your mind, it doesn't all make sense, but your heart is burning. And you know there's something about this. I want to live this way. I want to be a part of a people that live this way. And let me just say this. I know COVID taught us to stay at home and watch the web stream. You know what you can get on the web stream? You can get teaching. But you know what you can't get on the web stream? A people gathered together around the presence. Getting in the midst with the family of God, where the glory of God is among us, that is not reproducible on a web stream. That's why coming to the prayer room, coming to services, and, and, and really engaging our hearts under this, that's why it's so important, because this is what God's doing in the earth. Some of you, your heart agrees so richly and so deeply with this, and I'm telling you, God's going to do a thing to you like he did to me. He's going to pluck you up out of what you were doing. He's going to reset you, reorient you. And you're going to be one that's going to be in one of these other 24-7 churches. You're going to help us plant them. You're going to be one that's going to help us plant churches all over this city. You've been trying to figure out, I've got this ministry calling, but I don't know how to to find my way into it. And I'm telling you, it's through fasting and prayer, night and day, in the place of his presence. In Antioch, when they ministered to the Lord, the Lord said, separate unto me. Paul, Barnabas, for the work that I have for them. God's gonna separate some of you unto the work. That's what it means to be an apostolic people. We're given to his, his plan, his glory, whatever he says. That's what goes. Let's just pray for a moment. I want to pray for you this morning. Let's just close our eyes, set our hearts on the Lord. If you'd say to me, I don't know how it would look, but I feel like the Lord's compelling me in some way to serve and seeing this citywide tabernacle established Maybe it's here in our midst on staff. You know, we have full-time singers and musicians who are free from, you know, regular employment in the world. They are employed in tending night and day worship and prayer. You know, you can be one of those. 
It's not just for the singers and musicians. It's for the intercessors. It's for the artisans. It's for those with a helps anointing, a, a leadership anointing. There's so many, many environments you can engage with, but the center will always be his presence. Maybe you're bivocational. Maybe you're called in the marketplace and you have a ministry anointing. And you're just sensing, I need God to set me. Something I'm saying this morning resonates with you and you feel like, man, this is what I'm called to do and what I'm called to be. I want to call you out from where you're standing. I want you to come down here. I want to pray for you. You'd say, I don't know how, I don't know when, but building that citywide tabernacle, that's something I feel like is in my heart. I want to do that. That's you. I just want you to come on down right now. Being a part of this spiritual family, yes, that's how we build it. We do what we do night and day, day and night. We live this way. But some of you have a sense he's calling you. Maybe even to launch out. Maybe get on an apostolic team that we're going to be building. Send you in another part of the city. Well, of course it would be a hundred people. It'll be hundreds and hundreds. Let's just do this. Let's just lift our hands to the Lord. God, here we are. We may not understand all of this with our minds, but we want to just say yes. Even like Abraham, when you called him to a place he did not know, we just want to say yes in the grace of God. God, you've given us the DNA to be multicultural, to be multi-generational, to value gifts in men and women, black and white, Asian, Hispanic, old and young, every kind, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, singers, musicians, artisans, dancers, creatives of every kind. God, I'm asking, release the creatives, release the filmmakers, the artists, the dancers, the poets, release the creatives, God. We need them to build the tabernacle. God, I'm asking even right now, do something profound in our hearts for such a time as this. God, this wave of a hundred, let there be hundreds upon hundreds, hundreds and hundreds that you gather to our family. 25 bases in the nations, five 24-7 tabernacles in Atlanta, hundreds of worship and prayer center churches. God, do it in our day and our time. Reestablish the tabernacle of David in Atlanta. Let us be a presence-centered people, a prayer-centered people. Let us find ourselves watching and waiting night and day day and night night and day day and night until Jerusalem is made a praise come on just engage your heart with him right now we love you God we worship you oh yeah we sing this over the city right now
glory, God. Your will, your way. We're for you. We're not for our own name. We're for you. We're not for our own brand. We're for you. Have your way in every way. Do all you want to do, God. Use us. Use us to see your glory fill Atlanta. King of glory, have your glory. Have your glory, King of glory. So Lord, set us as watchmen on the wall. We say yes in Jesus' name.